Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money, unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. Erinch Saha joins me today on the podcast. Erinch's career at Oxfam and then CEO of the World Fair Trade Organization has led him to his latest endeavor. Erinch is now at Donut Economics Action Lab, or DEAL, as you'll hear us reference it in our chat. Erinch tells us about Donut Economics, the theory by British economist Kate Rayworth. This theory argues that 20th century economic thinking is not equipped to deal with the 21st century reality the reality of a planet teetering on the edge of climate breakdown. Erinch will share with us how Deal is turning this radical idea into transformative action. I'm really excited because last time I saw you, you were the CEO of the World Fair Trade Organization, and now you are working for the Donut Economics Action Lab. So tell me about Donut Economics. What is it? What does um, Donut Economics Action Lab do? Well, wonderful to be with you, John. I mean, Donut Economics Action Lab really is about a new vision for human prosperity in the 21st century. This might sound like a mouthful, but essentially what we're doing is acknowledging that the systems, the approaches, the ways of addressing our economic challenges from last century are no longer fit for purpose. They're no longer the ones that will serve us in the 21st century and we need some new ideas we need some new systems some new approaches so donut economics action lab is really about empowering those ideas and individuals and communities that are on the forefront of that innovation it's about sort of bringing to life the ideas of donut economics which is very much about sort of these two concentric rings if you're everyone closes their eyes for a second and they think of two concentric rings One is a social foundation that ensures that no one is left falling short of life's essentials. And above that, there's an ecological ceiling, which ensures that humanity does not collectively overshoot the planetary boundaries that protect Earth's life-supporting systems. And between these two concentric circles, between the social foundation on one side and the ecological ceiling on the other, lies that donut-shaped space that is both ecologically safe and socially just, and it's a space in which sort of humanity can thrive. So that's donut economics, and bringing that to life is no mean feat because it is sort of a meta-framework for ourselves as a species and as a planet, and it's happening in, in a multitude of ways. It's happening with city governments, it's happening with finances, it's happening with businesses, it's happening through activists and community leaders, through teachers, through policymakers, who are all translating this framework into their area of work. And how are you finding it? I mean, it sounds incredibly progressive. It's got, you know, principles that we clearly need to get to before we, a terrible, terrible place. Are you finding that there is great momentum across all the different actors? We are. What we're finding is that the book uh, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist by um, my friend and colleague Kate Rayworth has 
really cut through into the imagination of people. It's been described as sort of an entry point into new economics for a lot of individuals, from monarchs to community organizers, from business leaders to city mayors and everyone in between. What it's created is really an opportunity to have a new discussion around what our economy needs to become in the 21st century. And what's exciting for me is to now open up this space for business. Because for a long time, I think we've left business alone a little bit. We, we've let business be business. And there's been, I think, a lot of, as, as you know, John, as well, because you're involved in so many of these ideas and concepts and Cafe Direct's been at the you know, heart of so many of these sorts of different ideas that are trying to remake our world from B Corp to fair trade to social enterprise, that there's a lot of energy around what the questions are. And I think we're at the beginning of that innovation point, but I think through Donut Economics Action Lab, what we're trying to do is really supercharge some of that innovation and that new thinking that needs to emerge without some of the tribal barriers or the tribal identities that, that have now come up in this alternative business world that, that I think are starting to hinder some of this progress. So you're saying really that you're opening up this space for business, you sort of left business alone. What is it that business can do to really align itself with the principles? I mean, step one is to recognize that the big change is not just going to come from the impacts that a business has, nor from the practices that it has, but from its own design. Because its design as an enterprise, its design institutionally is what determines how it will behave in the long run and the impacts it will have on society and our planet in the long run. So I think what the first thing needs to be is a bit of an inward introspective journey for every business to think, do I have the right design to do what I need to do? If I need to be regenerative in my practices, where I'm being more generous to Mother Nature and our planet than I have been giving back nutrients into soils, sequestering carbon if, if that's possible, taking waste and turning it into, into usable products and creating circular economy models of production, for instance. If I want to do that, and on the social side, if I want to be much more distributive, much more equal than, than I have been in the way value and opportunity is distributed to the people involved in my business, then how do I need to change who I am? How does my board need to look? How does my ownership need to look? How does my relationship with my financiers, those who have invested and now expect a particular return at a particular point in time need to look? How does my purpose need to be framed and locked in through my governing documents and, and all the other measures that are in there? How do my networks need to keep me in check, whether that's certification or my trading relationships? These are the first fundamental questions. So I think for too long, businesses have just said, look, I am who I am. Tell me what to do to make me have a slightly better impact than I have been. And maybe one day I'll become 100% less bad. I'll have no human rights abuses and I'll have net zero carbon emissions or whatever. What we're trying to say is actually you can design yourself to be more than 100% less bad. You can design yourself to do the donut, which is to be regenerative by design and distributive by design. And that requires you looking deeply into your enterprise model deeply into the way you're structured, the way that you're set up. And that's firstly an inward journey before it becomes an outward journey. Because I've always felt blessed at Cafe Direct that you know the, the business model was built up as an alternative trade model. So the, the principles upon which it's built, the article association, the gold standard, all of the fundamentals are, are there. And then I listen to other businesses going, well, it's really difficult and we're set up in a different way. And what you're saying is rather than have little incremental shifts for those businesses, to start internalizing where you want to get to and building ground up rather than just tweaking. Is that where you're heading? 
Absolutely. I think it is looking at where you need to be. Think of the craziest, most bold ideas in being regenerative and distributive possible. You know, what if my work has got all my profits? What if the farmers own this thing? What if the regenerative agriculture was not just something that we, we do here and there where it's convenient, but it's actually like the centerpiece of all our production? What if circular economy was embedded into the way we do business? What if we had a modular product design? That meant that maybe we sell fewer things, but our products last longer. All these things that maybe are very difficult to do in a profit-maximizing world where quick and fast and large returns are expected from financiers and the whole business is set up to kind of achieve that and you're trying to then chase your tail to do you know, practices that are inclusive and sustainable, but on the other side actually don't quite fit the commercial expectations put on your business. Rather than that, imagine if we could then design your business differently. And, and that's such a scary proposition for a lot of business leaders because, you know, they might feel like there's not very little I can do about that. Look, I'm listed on the stock market. What do you want me to do? Or I've, I've got a particular ownership model and my board is who it is. But I think the more useful conversation is even if we're talking 20 years, 30 years down the line, have a plan for transforming yourself, not just like ignoring that conversation altogether it's useful because i think firstly the enterprises that will dominate our economy in 20 years time they haven't been born yet so you being a part of that transformation journey the innovation around it helps us set a different kind of economy for all those newcomers that are going to populate i mean 20 years ago google facebook you know all these businesses they didn't exist imagine if they all look like wikipedia and and were foundation-owned mission-led purpose-led businesses that we're just embedded into their model, that actually they have a different mission than profit maximizing. Imagine the world we'll be living in. So we have that opportunity to do that with businesses that haven't been born yet. And today's businesses also have a responsibility to set that agenda, to go, look, don't take our sort of flawed structure. We're, we're trying to improve ourselves. We're trying to change our structure as well. So I, I think that journey is going to be a big one. And, and we need business leaders to be bold and ambitious on, on enterprise design. This is very exciting. You're very energized by it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've known you for quite a while now. So it really fits with the journey you're on in terms of the, the impact that you want to have in, in the work that you do and the change you're trying to make. On a practical basis, though, how do businesses get involved with deal? Well, at the moment, what we are planning is to have a toolkit that will come out sometime in 2022. The first thing they can do currently is they could do an introspective. We have a tool called When Business Meets the Donut on the donuteconomics.org website that they can look at. It's a talk by Kate Rayworth that sort of talks them through some steps of how to look at their purpose, their networks, their governance, their ownership, and their finance. We'll be expanding on that substantively in 2022. Uh, we'll be creating a range of materials and also hosting some discrete workshops with, with some leading pioneering businesses that are genuinely up for this. You're also an author of books and reports and all kinds of stuff. And the one I wanted to think about was the report about creating the new economy, business models that put people and planet first. Because, you know, clearly for Cafe Direct, this is fundamental to our reason for being, but it's also so important on the journey that all business needs to be on. Talk a little bit about when you wrote that report, what the findings were that really were quite, um, I don't know whether there were some astonishing ones or some that you really thought, God, those are so important to the future of business. That was a report that was very, and it still is very close to my heart. It was written together with our good friend, Bob Doherty, who you also know well. And I, I know that I, over his time, Bob has, under the terminology of hybrid businesses, 
studied Cafe Direct and Divine Chocolate and other sort of fair trade pioneers from that perspective, but also Helen Hall from University of Cambridge, who's a phenomenal social enterprise scholar. And we had also authors from the Stockholm Environment Institute and from Tradecraft Exchange as well, the NGO. So we had a a real sort of, I think, superstar cast of people that, that were primed to look at this question of, right, so we've got a few amazing standouts from the fair trade movement, like Cafe Direct and Divine Chocolate, but actually there's another 400 plus in the World Fair Trade Organization that are also fair trade organizations using the language of sort of the fair trade movement. What can we learn from them? You know, no one studied these before. These worker-owned factories like Creative Handicrafts in Mumbai or artisan-owned uh, fashion brands and retailers like Manos del Uruguay, 12 women's weaving and dyeing cooperatives together own you know, a 5 million euro turnover business that is supplying high-end fashion on Madison Avenue and Champs-Élysées. You know, there are all these sort of enterprises like this or Makita in Ecuador, which is manufacturing its own chocolate with its own brand. You know, we've got all these sort of phenomenal cases of, okay, they're fair trade, but there's something else going on because the, the actual organizational model, the enterprise model is, is beyond just the relationship between the brand and the suppliers. The organization is structured in a really innovative way that maybe gives us a bit of a proof of concept of what the future economy needs to look like. So there's a few amazing standout sort of things that came out of the report. Firstly, that of those enterprises, the majority are led by women and the majority of the boards are composed of women and the majority of senior executives and senior managers are women and you know that's a bit of a chicken and egg thing is it because women are at the helm that you've got these mission-led organizations thriving or is it because you've got mission-led organizations that you're allowing women to be at the helm and maybe the answer is a little bit of, of both and i'm aware that we're two men talking about this at the moment and it doesn't mean that there are no you know it's close to half of the ceos are men as well but it's a still in stark contrast to the mainstream world so that was that was a really interesting insight that sort of brought out the gender perspective of it Another one was that they were 92% of the enterprises were reinvesting 100% of their profits. And that's, again, a really interesting insight because you start thinking about what has enabled them to give them that, that liberty to say, you know what, there's no investor expecting to extract something from me. So I can put everything back in. I can use all of this to train the next cadre of workers I'm going to bring in who have got no other livelihoods and I'm going to use this to make sure that you know these workers can be part owners in my factory or can be a part of the organization going forward when no one else is going to invest in them or I'm going to use these profits to give back to the farmers or I'm going to use the profits for innovation but there's no external financier expecting to extract those profits. So that was 92%. I mean, the WFTO standard requires the majority of profits to be reinvested in the social mission, but 92% was that they do it anyway and they do all of it. The other one was that 85% were, were deliberately saying, look, we are navigating this in a way where we're sometimes we're giving up commercial opportunities to put social and ecological issues first. We could do this cheaper. We could find places to manufacture the same product cheaper. We could find ways of cutting costs. We can find ways of increasing our profits, but we're committed to our social mission. That might mean we're going to use indigenous production models that are maybe a little bit more costly to begin with, but they create more livelihoods and they create more opportunities and they have a better ecological impact because it's hand woven or what it might be is um, more sort of sound, natural dyes or that sort of thing. And the last bit was that they were also four times more resilient than regular 
small and medium-sized enterprises. Not because they made more money, but because they stuck around. You know, I think a lot, lot of SMEs might have closed down last year because it just wasn't worth it. But the more mission-led organizations, they stick around. They, they're just sticky. They're persistent because they're not there for a quick buck. They're not there because the, the spreadsheet tells them that the return on investment's now optimal and now it's not. So let's sell off our assets and close down. They stick around longer term. And, and I think that resilience has got an economic clue about our future as well because communities benefit from having enterprises that don't close down when times get tough. And I think those mission-led organizations have a broader economic inclusive impact. I think um, I would feel exactly the same. I feel that when you have a purpose, when you have, you know, as a person or as an organization, that helps you get through all kinds of experiences. So it makes you incredibly resilient. And I think the pandemic is the most recent... uh, experience of that isn't it i think when you when you know what you're trying to achieve and it's beyond just making money for the few you are able to adapt and move forward with great certainty rather than being uh, terrified of the short-term profit issues that you're facing so it's an important thing to have i think is a purpose a mission something you believe in something more than just the kind of commercial piece and you might also find john i expect you might in your position that when times get tough, you have solidarity with others that share your values. When the pandemic hit and I was at the Welfare Trade Organization, the vast, vast majority of fair trade buyers gave additional flexibility to their suppliers. While mainstream brands were doing the opposite, they were saying, well, we're, gonna, we, we're exposed to more risk now, so we're going to cut more orders, or we're going to renegotiate contracts, or we're going to put a few things on ice. But the complete opposite happened among social enterprises who practice fair trade and i think that's no mean feat you know that that's no minor thing that means that actually you get more more resilient communities but you get more resilient global trade you get more resilient economies globally out of that sort of level of solidarity that comes out of it yeah no it was quite remarkable how do you see the progress being made in the last 20 years yeah i mean i think the narrative has shifted very far to a point where I think it's the Davos crowd is talking about stakeholder capitalism. You know, they're saying how shareholder capitalism is broken and it's no longer fit for purpose. No one's doing anything about it at a meaningful systemic level, but there's an acknowledgement that that system, which was created when financial capital was scarce, so it was at the driver's seat of everything. Now, actually, natural capital is scarce and human and social capital is scarce. Well, we haven't figured out a way to make those capitals the thing we're maximizing for. We're still doing it for financial capital. So nothing is changing systemically, but I think the narrative is changing substantively. But at the same time, I'm seeing a lot of very interesting young entrepreneurs, particularly in less capital intensive sectors where they don't need a huge injection of venture capital to be a success. I'm seeing them embrace the social enterprise model much more holistically. And and I think that's no accident that there's a sort of a distinction between these capital intensive things. If you have to buy a massive piece of machinery and you've got a 500 million euro or pound investment, you know, you're going to have to probably bend to financial markets quite a bit, at at which point you start to give up some of your purpose and your mission. Yeah. So I guess the fact that the narrative is changing is the first thing. It means that there's awareness, isn't there? And there's, there's not only awareness, but there's a degree of salience and a degree of discussion, which must lead to action. So I think that that is definitely progress. 
we're at the beginning of that innovation journey where we haven't invented the models and the businesses of the 21st century. I mean, I've got so much sort of goodwill towards all of those certifications out there and labels. And, you know, as you know, I used to run one of them, but I think that a lot needs to happen outside of those where we have much more of a, a big tent approach to this. You know, we need to go beyond some of those tribal boundaries that, that have emerged, I think, in the alternative business space to start unpacking, you know, what does this future enterprise look like? Because some amazing things, I think the social enterprise movement is one where some of the, the most impressive and necessary innovations happened. Despite everything, the, the whole business ecosystem, I think, remains what it was from the 20th century. There's been changes on the margins and some high profile things at the margins, but to the core of what an MBA student is taught to do, the core of how accounting rules count only financial capital and they don't count all the other capitals, the core of how regulations work and the core of what financial markets sell business, it must be all about, hasn't really shifted. Despite that, I think people are doing remarkable things, often out of the awareness of the human spirit that this is for our own survival now. <laughs> you know, we're not going to survive if we just keep burying our head in the sand and using fig leaves here and there to cover up what's systematically broken. So I think the next step has got to be some big, big ideas about how financial markets look fundamentally different. Because if we, we can't just be all about maximizing returns to capital and accumulating wealth in proportion to capital. So, I mean, how do we change that then? I think it's, got, it's going to happen through a multitude of ways. I think Occupy Wall Street was a really important moment. And what a shame we didn't really have the big ideas developed in the right to the right level at that point to accompany the boots on the ground with, right, here are some alternatives, some tried and tested alternatives. But I think there is going to need to be some popular citizen-led movement. There's going to need to be some consumer-led movement, which, which we're seeing happen. But it's a murky world out there for consumers. There's a lot of a lot of greenwash. There's a spaghetti soup of ethical claims out there for consumers to swim through. I think critically, we need to start really having this big tent approach between all the alternatives that are going on. I would say nearly all the social enterprise movement, nearly all the cooperatives movement, many B Corps as well, I would, I would include in that, who are truly an alternative in terms of creating an economy that is for a different century. And I think we need to be very clear about that distinction between the former economy being all about that straitjacket of maximizing profits and extracting profits for shareholders and the new economy, which is all about maximizing benefits to people and to planet. That means that we can't fudge that and say, yeah, you can sort of make even more money by doing the right thing anyway. Like the minute we start sliding into that, fudge of going, yeah, you make more money anyway, and your returns are even higher, and the ESG funds have outperformed mainstream markets anyway, then we basically concede that no change is necessary. We're fine. Keep going. And we're, we're obviously not doing well. I mean, when you look at the global donut framework, we are in massive overshoot on nearly all planetary boundaries, and we're under-delivering for all humans around the world. You know, we need economies and business models that are genuinely regenerative and distributive by design, not just conveniently profit maximizing and greenwashing a few good things on the side. I mean, what I, what I think I'm hearing and what I'd really love is rather than working around the edges, you're sort of redefining what economy is, aren't you? You are bringing us back to a modern definition that is all inclusive rather than narrow and only financial, which feels like a very big idea and you know it's key. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the starting points for donut economics is actually to change the very goal from like endless GDP growth to thriving in the donut. So we sort of beginning economic analysis by seeing that bigger picture and recognizing that the economy is embedded within and dependent upon society and the living world. That, you know, the economy is not a separate thing. It's a part of the living world and it's a part of society and it's, it relies on a healthy society and a thriving living world. So, you know, I think we also need to then recognize that human behavior can be nurtured to be cooperative and caring, that it's not just about being competitive and individualistic. It's not just about winning and crushing and growing that as a result, I think we can, if we take that as a starting point, then we can say, okay, let's build business models like cafe direct. What would you encourage each of us to do about it? The most important thing we can do is really push that conversation is to really open that up and start saying, look, we need different kinds of boards. We need different kinds of ownership. We need different ways profit is distributed, is accumulated, and we need a completely different way of organizing businesses. Now let's get to work. Let's let's start unpacking this together and let's push companies, entrepreneurs, businesses, and as well as obviously policymakers to to embrace the fact that it's it's ours it's ours to determine. But unless we change the institutional structures of our economy, unless we change you know, what business is and why it exists and, and, and the way that its organizational design can, can follow that. Unless we change financial markets, unless we change structurally things, we're going to be chasing our own tail. We're not going to achieve the changes that our planet and society needs of us. So it, it means that, yes, we, we've got to have those uncomfortable conversations that go beyond the, well, here's something we can do today. Let's let's start, you know, reducing our carbon footprint a bit, or let's start having slightly uh, more respect for human rights in our supply chain. All those are good things. No one's saying we shouldn't do those, but we also need to realize that the, the structures that got us here, that got us into this mess of being in huge overshoot of planetary boundaries and, and hugely falling short of life's essentials for the people on this planet, those structures need to need to change and evolve in quite a fundamental way. And, and they're from last century. They were, they were from a century where capital was, was in short supply and it was designed to maximize and, and retain capital. And now we've got other capitals. We've got natural, human and uh, social capital that's much more important to us. And that means a fundamental redesign. It's been really amazing uh, to see you and see you so energized in what is a really important mission for, for Deal. So no, thank you for your time as ever. Great to speak to Erinch and hear of all the great work happening at Deal. Exciting and inspiring stuff. Bye for now. Join us next time on Building Better Business. <laughs>